Hey, welcome to the podcast of C3 Los Angeles. I'm Jake Sweetman, and together with my wife, Nicole, we lead this church. We're glad you're here, and we pray that wherever you're tuning in from, that you are encouraged and strengthened by this word. Here's today's message. The title of today's message is uh, Grace in the Thorns. Grace in the Thorns. I had a bunch of different titles. I thought Thorny Grace might work, but it looked like, in my mind, kind of like a metal cover, Grace with Thorns coming out of it. So I settled on grace in the thorns. Second Corinthians 12, 6 to 10 says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool. For I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, that we all wish we could talk like that, because of the, the greatness of thought and depth of revelation. That's how Paul talks. To keep him from becoming that way. A thorn was given me in the flesh. A thorn was given. I love that Paul talks about that as a gift. <laughs> it's not, he doesn't say a thorn was inflicted me upon me in the flesh. He says a thorn was given me as though it's a, a gift. A messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then... I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am... Whoa, we almost got there. For when I am weak, then I am... Wow. For when I am weak, then I am... I am strong. So uh, Paul is uh, explaining this to the Corinthians who have been going through some trials of their own and growing pains as a church. And Paul is not one to pull the punches on how he confronts these issues. And so he writes from his own testimony, therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the first question we got to answer here is what Paul means by the power of Christ. And this is the amazing outcome of what Paul calls boasting about his weaknesses. And if we're going to live in such a way, we may as well understand what God promises to give us as a result. Amen? This passage is helpful in 1 Corinthians 1 30 to 2 verse 6. And it says, And because of him, the Father, uh, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. 
And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul is saying that at this time, the Corinthian church who was longing for impressive speech and for worldly wisdom need to remember, need to be reminded that they were not transformed by these things, but they, uh, they were transformed by the power of the Spirit of Jesus through the simple preaching of the gospel of Jesus. Paul says just previously that by worldly standards, not many of them were wise, powerful, or of noble birth before meeting Christ. But now that they are in Christ and in Christ alone, they have received the wisdom of God, the righteousness of God, and God's sanctifying and His redeeming power. That's good news, amen? In other words, they who by all sensible accounts could not be considered, could be considered as next to nothing have been totally transformed and positioned in Christ who is everything. And all of this happened by the power of the gospel message of Jesus Christ crucified. Now worldly wisdom can incite the mind, it can tickle our ears, but the point that Paul is making is that your heart is transformed, our lives are transformed, our soul can only be transformed by the gospel. Recall a few weeks back on Easter, we talked about how, uh, how God's grace does what the law was never able to do. That is, give us new hearts capable of actually choosing to obey God instead of obeying our own sinful desires. That is truly the most incredible miracle of all, that through the preaching of the gospel, the most sinister and perpetual problem that mankind for thousands of years has faced can be dealt with in an instant. The hardness of our hearts can be changed. My point is, if the power of Christ is enough to change the human heart, then we must understand that the same power can do absolutely anything. This is exactly what Paul wants to remind the Corinthians of who have been lured away into quarrels about which human teacher sounds the most impressive and which supposedly gives them the greatest leg up in the Christian life. He says to them at the start of his letter in 1 Corinthians 1, 4 to 8, I give thanks to my God always for you because the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God's grace is what enriched them in every single way with so many gifts of the Spirit and the power of Christ even though when the gospel came to them, like all of us, we were dead within our trespasses. Paul says, it's all by grace. So why are you switching now to worldly ways of thinking? Only by grace is true growth, true breakthrough possible. 
This is precisely the power of Christ that Paul says rests upon him and upon anyone who boasts not about their qualifications, not about their successes, but in their weaknesses. This is the power that rests upon those who boast not of themselves, but they boast of God. If the power of Christ can transform our hearts, then it can transform our lives. In Mark 2, 9 to 12, it says, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise up, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose up immediately, picking up his bed and went out before them all. So they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. That is forgiveness and healing, the inner and the outer miracle. And this is the power of Christ, which makes all things possible. Acts 19, 18 to 20, it says, also many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them inside of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Those who were believing, they came confessing and they publicly set fire to their old life. It was an inner transformation with an outer declaration and that brought a citywide revival. No wonder elsewhere in Acts, Paul and his companions are described as those who were turning the world upside down. This is the power of Christ which makes all things possible. This is the power that's available to us when we depend on God's grace instead of our own merit. And when the grace of God comes upon your life in the form of His power, nothing is impossible. Amen? When the grace of God comes upon a church in the form of His power, nothing is impossible. In Zechariah 4, 6-7, we read, Then He said to me, This is the word of the Lord. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, before Zerubbabel? You shall become plain, and he shall bring forward the top stone amid shouts of grace, grace to it. Zerubbabel, who was the governor uh, of post-exile Judah, would complete the rebuilding of the temple. That's why it talks about from the foundation to the top stone, meaning the floor to the ceiling. And no mountain, that is no obstacle, whether political, practical, financial, spiritual, would stand in the way. Every mountain would be made plain. And people would credit it to the grace of God, also known as having been done by the Spirit of the Lord. The work that God began through Zerubbabel, God would also complete through Zerubbabel. This speaks prophetically to the work that God began 2,000 years ago and the work He's still completing to this day. Not merely through a governor of Judah, but through the reigning king of everything. This is the work of God's powerful grace working in the lives of His church, of this church, C3LA. 
about this, Philippians 1.6 says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to, will bring it to, at the day of Jesus Christ. And this shall also be done, not by might, nor by power, but by the power of Christ. The full arrival of God's kingdom shall happen with his people shouting, grace, grace has done it. And all the while in the process with every miracle, with every breakthrough, with every victory, every life transformed, every marriage restored, every ailment healed, every need met, every soul saved, we will say grace has done it. And in every struggle, every seemingly insurmountable obstacle, every molehill presenting itself as an immovable mountain, we will shout, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And while we engage in moving such mountains, we will do so as those totally dependent upon God, boasting not of our own strength, but our weaknesses, because it is our weaknesses that yields to God's grace. And it's His grace that brings the power that makes impossible things become possible. Even if the impossible thing is that we never gave up. We never sat out. We never retreated. We never lost hope, but kept fighting the good fight of faith. Kept on leaving the 99 to go after the one. Kept on coming to the table of God, even while walking through the shadow of the valley of death. We kept praying. We kept worshiping. We kept believing. We kept serving. We kept sowing. And we kept walking. The power of Christ comes upon His church to do exactly that. Amen. What are the limitations on a church that is empowered by the grace of God? I say to you, none. There is no limit to how long they can last and no limit to how far they can go. We've already lasted 2,000 years and gone as far as the four corners of the earth. So what's another 2,000 years and another 2 billion souls saved? What's another lap around the world so that all can hear the gospel? We've already come through one pandemic and some of the most politically tumultuous years in recent history. And we've come through stronger, more refined, and more focused than before. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, then who can be against us? I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not disease, not inflation, not the failure of those within the church or the rejection of those without. No, in all of these things, we are more than conquerors in Christ who loved us. All things are possible by the grace of God, but all things must be sought by God's grace, not depending on boasting about our own strengths. This isn't just true for the church as a collective, but it's also true for you as an individual. Grace means that nothing is impossible for your own life. You don't have to settle for a post-COVID, this is just it now mentality. This is just the way life is and I've fallen into acceptance. You do not have to settle for that. From God's perspective, whatever mountain you're facing now is nothing more than how the dust has just settled after the shaking. He can move that mound of dust with one breath. So rather than be complacent with where the dust has settled, why don't you seek God for how that mountain can be moved? If you're not sure, just ask Joseph. 
Just ask Moses, just ask Paul. Between the three of them, years are spent in prison. Years are spent in forced servitude. Years are spent in the wilderness and years are spent as an enemy of God. And yet God in His grace, not because they were great or they were strong or deserving, He moved mountains that lay before them. You have to come out of this series believing that your whole life is going to be extraordinary by God's grace. Your whole life is going to be aimed at positioning yourself to experience the power of Christ Because with the power of Christ, all things are possible. Not just for you, but also through you. That your life may amount to something far greater than the greatness of your own life. That is my testimony as as a a human being, as as someone who's standing here. As me as just Joseph Pringle. Me as a pastor. Me as a husband. Me as a father. I... Uh, I, by my own merit, do not deserve the life that has been given to me. For many years, I, I ran away and uh, lived a life of, of my own making, made my own decisions on my own accord, when I wanted to make them, how I wanted to make them. And in the process, hurt many people, most of all hurting myself, ending up in a position where I didn't know if I wanted to live, I didn't know if I wanted to die, so I was just in an in a emotionless existence, stuck there, feeling like black tar depression had been poured over my head, not being able to breathe in my nose, breathe in my mouth. Everywhere I felt a heaviness within me. And yet by the grace of God and through a set of just very random things, do you know God can use an atheist to change your life? Even as a lost person, I was introduced to an atheist who began me on a journey of breaking addiction in my world. Strong addictions, addictions that I didn't want to give up. And in that process, realizing, wow, the power of God is really true, and I need to lean upon that. This gift that has been given to me in the form of grace is beautiful. And in that process, my, my friend, he uh, began coming to church. And he gave his life to Christ, and he still worships him to this day. By that account and moving forward, giving my life entirely over to the building of his house, I, I was given things and was entrusted with responsibilities. And I don't, I don't deserve this. I, I really don't. There's, there's many days where I feel very inadequate, and I fall short, but by the grace of God, when I come to Him in my weakness, when I don't try and hide that from the people who are in my trusted circles, by His grace, I am strengthened. My life has been enriched. I've been gracefully given the most beautiful wife in the world, most graceful wife to me, continually extending that grace, being given the beautiful gift of a child and being a father, and then uh, one of the most incredible responsibilities of looking after this church here in the South Bay, and it's by the grace of God. It is by the grace of God. If I didn't pray, if I didn't seek His face, if I didn't worship, I would be crushed. I would be crushed. And so it's by the greatness of God's gift of grace, not by the greatness of my own life. 
All the credit and merit to Him. So if the grace of God is the number one ingredient for our lives, then one of our top priorities should be understanding and overcoming what keeps us from the grace of God, right? Our first point here today is the problem is pride. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 says, So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Twice Paul states that the thorn in his flesh was for the purpose of keeping him becoming conceited. Why did, Paul, uh, why did God care if Paul was conceited or not? Not just because God doesn't like it when we become prideful or conceited, but because God cannot work with conceited people. The word, the word can, thank you. You're awesome. He cannot work with conceited people. The word conceited literally means to be uplifted, to lift oneself up over. There's a word picture here in connection to the revelations that Paul said he had when he, involved, uh, when he was involved in a heavenly experience. And naturally, as just human beings, we would respond to such an experience with wanting to begin claiming spiritual superiority to raise ourselves up over others. So Paul writes, so to keep me from becoming conceited, a thorn was given me in my flesh. So where do thorns grow out of? Out of the ground. It's good. Where do thorns grow out? Now I've given you the answer. I'm just trying to inspire some confidence in the congregation here. Where do thorns grow out of? They do. You guys are awesome. So when Paul would have been tempted to become conceited uplift, or uplifted, God allowed him a thorn in his flesh that kept him grounded. Why? Because to be conceited, to be lifted up over others is to be out of position for receiving God's grace. But to be grounded is to be low, which is to be in the place where God's grace goes. Grace goes to the grounded. The issue with pride and why pride causes you to miss out on the grace of God is because pride is aimed at self-exaltation. But God's grace doesn't flow uphill. It only flows down to the grounded, to those who remain grounded no matter the experiences or the successes that we've had. God's grace in your life will amount to experiences and outcomes that could cause you to become uplifted in pride. Just like Paul had such incredible experiences. God will give you the mountaintops, but he will also allow the valleys. He'll allow you the thorns that keep you grounded and help you to see that the grace, that what grace gave you on the mountain wasn't for the purpose of telling others how good you are, but sharing with others that you are just another sinner, just like them, and God is really, 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 really good to sinners. Now notice that Paul said to God, uh, said God allowed the thorn to keep me from becoming conceited. The main person God was protecting Paul from was himself. And the thorn was to keep him where he should be 
and to prevent him from crossing over into where he should not be. Being kept somewhere means being given a boundary. God allows certain hardships that keep us from crossing over lines that would take us outside our anointing, outside the refuge of his grace and favor, outside the place of depending upon his power. Because without those hardships, would certainly cross over into pride. This speaks to how protective God is over his own. He'll do whatever he must to keep you in his grace. If living by grace takes so many of the limits off your life, then God will go to the furthest limits to keep you grounded within his grace. Pride is a place that grace will not go. And ultimately, our pride doesn't stop at being proud before others. It's ultimately being proud before God. You know, pride has its obvious external attributes and and manifestations, but it also has more sinister and subtle internal attitudes. Would we agree? Has anyone not asked a question before because you don't want to appear like you don't know the subject that is being talked about? So you just kind of nod your head and you go, yes. Oh, complete. That's what I was thinking. It's an inward pride. Being prideful before others might be easily detectable. You know, seen in outward arrogance, the alpha walking into the room, an un- unwillingness to listen and learn from others, willfully committing sin without any concern for how it impacts our own lives or the lives of those around us. Such pride in the church must be lovingly confronted and humbly repented of. But sometimes pride is less easily detected. Sometimes our pride doesn't manifest visibly or obviously, but is an inner attitude of the heart. This is why the spiritual gift of discernment, discernment of spirits is so necessary in the body of Christ, which is a grace-empowered ability to detect what spiritual reality is at work behind a person's actions. And when confrontation is done in love and repentance is genuine and proven, then restoration can truly happen. So whether outwardly visible or inwardly festering, pride is pride, and the grace of God cannot go to this person. This is a really good check for all of us who may regularly feel like we're not experiencing the grace of God the way that others genuinely are. Has pride become a problem in our own lives? If our own pride is not the obvious kind, then have we gotten really good at masking it? Have we become a really good actor? Smiling, supposedly submitting, lifting our hands, reciting our prayers, being bodily present at various gatherings, but on the inside we are not as open to the changes that we know God wants us to make. So we're stuck. We get stuck. And if a grace culture is a growth culture, then a prideful culture is a stuck culture. It's a stunted culture. Why? Because pride means that you want others to see you higher as higher than you really are. And you can't grow from a place that you've not really reached. (laughs) So you're stunted. 2 Corinthians 12, 6 says, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. 
The goal of pride is that people would think more of what, uh, think more of you than what they see in you or they hear from you. Prideful people portray themselves as higher than the evidence of their lives would suggest. Because pride is ultimately connected to insecurity. Insecurity is connected to fear. We feel ashamed of where we actually are and of what our weaknesses are, so we try to project a a different image in the hopes that people would believe something about us that is at best partially true, or at worst, a, a total lie. Now, in today's society, can you think of uh, a, 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 a best example of what this might look like? So social media has to be. And what? Inventing Anna. Okay, wow. That's a Netflix documentary. Sure. On a recent trip, uh, we, we went to Montana and we had such a great time up there. And uh, as we went down Yellowstone for a day, we went to a place called the Devil's Thumb of all places. And it's one of those hot springs and it's got all the, the colored rock formations and it comes down and it's steaming and it smells kind of funny. And they've got all these pathways that walk up to it. And uh, Christine really wanted a really beautiful photo in front of this rock formation. But Charlie just wasn't having it. So I'm running around trying to get Charlie and she's like trying to jump into these hot waters and reaching down and touching these millions of, you know, tens of thousands of year old minerals on the ground and trying to pick it up. And I'm like, oh my goodness, picking her up, stop it. And then she's like slapping my face and everything. And Christine's like, I just want the photo. So then we, we finally get it and we're standing there and we're all happy and it's, it's a great photo. It's on Instagram. You can check it out. <laughs> oh. But we project this image. That's kind of a light one, but we do. We project this image to the world to mask and hide what we're internally dealing with. Listen to me. Your pride might fool other people for a time, but it does not fool God. And part of God's judgment for our pride is that He causes His grace to resist us. You will see in the Bible many times, God resists the proud. And apart from His grace, it won't be long before we fall apart. So we've got to figure out what the answer is. And if pride is the problem, then our hope is humility. Is that a big mind-blowing moment for you right there? The hope is humility. Humility is the all-encompassing key to positioning yourself for God's grace to flow to you. Now, let me tell you what humility is not. Humility is not a facial expression. Does that make sense? Yeah? Humility is not an external facade that we, we live out. Humility is an inner awareness of our own frailty. It is, it is living by that inner awareness of our own frailty that we extend dependence upon God. That we have to humbly always be coming towards Him, saying, I need your grace, God. I so need it. I need the voices of those who you've planted around me to encourage me, to speak truth into my situations. When you have that 
inner awareness of humility, you begin to become grateful. You find gratitude in, in everything. Gratitude, if, if you're looking for a simple key to finding humility in your life, find genuine gratitude in your world. Gratitude can be found in worship. Gratitude can be found in the, the, the simple luxuries that we have uh, within a Western world. Gratitude can be found in your spouse. Gratitude can be found in having a job. Gratitude can be found in having two-minute noodles in the cupboard. Gratitude can be found in actually having a car. Gratitude can be found in actually having a garage that you park that car, especially in L.A. Am I right? Am I right? But when you live by that gratitude, it, it erases all kinds of entitlement. So instead of me, me saying, I, I, I can stand up here, I am not entitled to be here. I don't live up here saying, I deserve this. This is where I'm supposed to be. But I do come with a sense of gratitude. Every time, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to lead this congregation along with my wife, along with our senior pastors. I'm so grateful to be a husband of an incredible woman, an incredible mother, be the father of such an incredible child. I find gratitude so often. And when you find that genuinely, you will discover humility on a continual basis. Grace goes to the ground, that is, to the humble. What's the best way to come down to the ground from being conceited? Pay attention to the thorns that God has allowed you to have. Often we miss God's invitation to humility because we're too busy explaining away our hardships instead of seeing them as doorways into a change of heart. We all have hardship and often we get so caught up in trying to solve these things as quickly as possible and getting them out of our lives without stopping to ask, why has God allowed this? What is he trying to teach me? Because I can almost guarantee you it has something to, uh, with rediscovering a place of humility before God and others so that God's grace can keep flowing to you. That is what biblical humility aims for. Rather than self, uh, self-exaltation, it aims for God-exaltation through a life of simple faith. Jesus' teaching for how we should practice our righteousness in the Sermon on the Mount, they give the perfect picture for what humility looks like. The summary of it is that in all our righteous activities, by uh, be them uh, fasting or praying or any other way that we serve God, we should not try and make others aware of that activity in order that they think more highly of us. Jesus is talking about our motivation for these things and how we shouldn't be concerned with trying to make others think much of us, but rather with merely trying to honor God. He's inviting us into lives of simple faith, which looks like engaging in a humble life without the fanfare. I think this is a big key to true humility. Humility is living in ordinary weakness, not portraying some special weakness. Why is this important? Because aiming at extraordinary weakness very easily becomes another form of pride. It becomes performative, becomes justification. 
Sermon on the Mount points to a life, uh, to living a life where people don't really notice you for either portraying yourself as uh, so great or portraying yourself as so humble. It's not a portrayal at all. There's no projection, only reality. It's just being before God and before others in genuine humility and in genuine love. God's grace doesn't go to the ultra humble. His grace just goes to the humble. (laughs) That's what I mean by grace is not a facial expression. Humility is not a facial expression. You know the humble facial expression? It's not a facial expression. (laughs) It doesn't go to the ultra humble. It just goes to the humble. This is what Jesus calls the secret place. It's the place where you don't seek to be noticed by others because all that matters is you've been noticed by God. God sees in secret is what Jesus says. If you think you uh, are humble but wondering why the grace of God doesn't seem to be with you and you have to ask yourself if you're truly humble before God or you're just humble before others. The litmus test for true humility is knowing the difference between the occasions for humility that you choose and the occasions for humility that choose you. (laughs) Humility that is motivated by uh, performance will amount to someone embracing humility only on their own terms. But sometimes an occasion for humility is forced upon us in the form of hardship, of a thorn, uh, of a persecution, and this is a test. And when that occasion chooses you, will you still be humble? Will you still resist the temptation to make others think that you are greater than you really are by choosing to not, not to cover up your weaknesses with the mountain of your pride? Will you rather stand in the valley of hardship, open about what's going on, open to the help of others, and open to how this can bring glory to God who sustains you in the midst of it all? Another way of understanding this is through what the Bible says in James uh, chapter 1, verse 2. It says, count it all joy, gratitude, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Occasions for humility that choose you often come in the form of various kinds of trials that meet you along the pathways of life. It wasn't like you saw an opportunity to be humble and you crossed over the other side of the street and you said, here I am, humble me. (laughs) And while that's great, sometimes the opportunity to be humble isn't something you choose. Sometimes it's a trial you couldn't even unchoose if you tried to. James says that when you meet these kinds of trials, count them as joy which means count them as a gain and not a deficit. For what you previously, if you have an accountant's mind, you got your, your bills and you've got your income. For what we might say or uh, look at trials in the previous as my deficit, oh, this is an outgoing, we then count it as a gain, as an income. And that is us choosing to face whatever we are facing with God, with His grace, and with gratitude. 
Don't let your heart get hardened to God or to the family of God. Don't shut yourself off from your purpose as a Christian. Don't recluse just because your life has become hard. Don't make life all about solving your problem as quickly as possible so that no one notices. Trust God, seek wisdom, be open to instruction, talk to God a lot. Listen for the invitation to any change of heart that God wants to bring about and choose humility in the midst of the hardships that choose you. The reason God allows you these seasons is because He's concerned not just with our external humility before others, but internal humility before Him. Paul goes as far to say that these are the very things he boasts about, these trials. We're all prone to boast about something. So let's make it the sufficiency of God's grace in the midst of our weakness. Again, keeping your weakness hidden may mean missing them for the invitation to humility that they are and therefore the place where Christ's power can rest upon us. Going back to our main scripture, Paul wrote, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Paul learned to love the fact that the thorn kept him grounded because that's where God's grace goes and that's where his power rests. Water can't rest as long as there's a lower place to flow. It must keep flowing until it's reached its lowest pooling point. Romans 12.3 says not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. And then he goes on to spiritual gifts which manifest the power of Christ. Thinking too highly of yourself positions you so that the power of God flows right past you instead of flowing to you and through you. The band can come up now as we close out here today. But that power is exactly why Paul says he boasts within his weakness. The power of Christ is precisely why we pursue a life of true humility before God because to gain Christ at the expense of everything else, every other accolade, every other commendation is to gain everything. And with the power of Christ alone, all things are possible. With God's approval on our lives, any door can be open. When we are grounded in grace, there's no limit to the breakthrough that God can bring to you individually and in our church. Walking in humility is also walking in faith. Grace, by definition, it cannot be earned. It must be received by faith. So while grace goes to the humble, we must recognize that humility is not another form of trying to earn God's grace. Rather, humility is the way of faith because it trusts God to reward us even when we haven't made it known to others what makes us worthy of a reward. Hebrews 11.6 says, Without faith, it is impossible to please Him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. We receive grace in humility because humility is saying that we are not the ultimate controllers of our lives. God is the ultimate presiding reality and authority over all the universe and He rewards those who seek Him rather than seeking to be noticed by the world. A life of humility is a life of faith in God who invites us to let go of constantly forcing outcomes 
You can trust God, live God's way and lead a life beyond explanation because God's grace is the only explanation. This is a life of faith. Humility is having the faith to submit to Christ instead of raising ourselves up over others, which produces a false authority. Only through submission do we receive authority. And you can only exercise as much authority as you are submitted to. When we humble ourselves, we receive the grace of God in the power of Christ and great things can be done, church. We can be a church where we recount our story and people go, God did what? What happened? And it doesn't make sense because God's grace is so good. You can be a person who recounts your story and people respond likewise. It doesn't make sense. And that's God's grace because God's grace is so good. Ultimately, we live this way for the sake of Christ. That's what Paul says, for the sake of Christ, I will live this way. Not for the sake of self-preservation, not for the sake of comfortability, for conformity, for fear, for insecurity, for saving face, but for the sake of Christ. And if God is committed to His own name and we need grace to glorify His name, then He's going to give us lots and lots of grace so that we can do that. Amen. You've been listening to the C3 Los Angeles podcast. If you found today's message helpful, we encourage you to share it with a friend and consider rating it. If you'd like more information about our church or details on how to get connected to a neighborhood group, head to c3losangeles.com. We love you. Thanks for tuning in with us.